Jeff Cobb, back with another edition of the Learning Revolution podcast. If you are in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, or professional development, or if you aspire to launch yourself into that business, then this is the podcast for you. I hope you've managed to catch our last two episodes with Michael Stelsner of Social Media Examiner and Dave Will of Peach New Media. In those episodes, we focused a a bit more on the marketing and business model side of the equation. In this episode, I'm really thrilled to be turning more towards the topic of learning and talking with a real expert on the subject, and that is Monisha Pashupathy, who is a professor at the University of Utah. In this episode, we're going to talk about learning in general, about how we learn, and also dig in a little bit on the topic of lectures and how effective those are. Uh, There's been kind of a lot of buzz around whether lectures are are a good learning tool or not out there. And if you're uh, in in the market for lifelong learning, you want to make sure that you're delivering learning in the best possible way. So let's turn now to the conversation with Dr. Manisha Pashupathy. I'm here with Monisha Pashupathy, who is an associate professor in developmental psychology at the University of Utah, and we are going to talk about how we learn today. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to have a discussion, Monisha. Thank you for, for having me. You know, as I indicated in um, my or- original email reaching out to you, uh, I have actually listened and, and watched, I did a combination uh, of uh, the two actually, um, to your How We Learn course that you developed with uh, the, the teaching company, which I just thought was uh, fantastic, just a, a great comprehensive uh, overview of learning. And um, I was wondering, just to, to start off with, uh, you know, w- w- was that a, a natural focus for you to, to put together a, a course in, in learning like that? Uh, was that something you'd already been focusing on, or did the teaching company come and, and, and scout you out for, for doing something like that? Um, it, was a, it was a little bit of both. I would say that um, the teaching company scouted me out um, when I was doing a research presentation, and my my area of research is, is sort of in the intersection of memory and personality. Mm-hmm. So um, I had not previously taught courses on learning, um, but in the context of working with a teaching company, uh, they wanted me to develop this one, and we sort of went back and forth and ended up working together on a, a course about learning that would be um, distinct in terms of what they have in their catalog mm-hmm. and would be doable for me in terms of what I what I know well and what I don't know well uh, and would be interesting and useful, I think, for customers. So there were sort of three, kind of three considerations at stake and what, and what they wanted out of the collaboration. Great. And I... So it was a challenge. <laughs> okay. Well, it was definitely one you rose to well, and I mean, obviously, you've got the you know the deep background in psychology. Uh, I know um, uh, you have a, a great focus on storytelling and memory and uh, things that, that certainly relate into the the whole area of learning. Um, and and I, I noticed you started out the course uh, in what I thought was a great way, talking about some of the myths uh, around learning. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, particularly with uh, respect to how adults learn, because that's that's really where I'm focusing most of. Uh, uh, my effort. Um, what do you think are some of the just fundamental misunderstandings that we have about how people learn? 
Um, I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings that, that we can have about learning as adults is that, uh, or one that really interests me is the idea that you know when you're learning. Mm. Um, and I think this one is interesting because that that myth or that sort of misunderstanding um, has a lot of implications. So one implication is that it means when I'm when I'm learning, I know that I'm learning, and it's a kind of uh, discrete activity, and it's taken out of the context of other activities. Um, and I think that the the reality is that virtually everything we do involves learning. Right. Um, sometimes it's learning we're not even paying attention to. Sometimes it's really when you get in your car and you drive the same route that you always drive to your office building. Um, you are, in, in a sense, relearning and, and making those actions even more automated than they already were. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I found that a, a sort of fascinating piece of information to convey to an audience. You, you don't walk out of your house without learning something, right? whether you meant to or not. Right, no, exactly. Um, and in related to, to that particular point, because I, I mean that's definitely a, a, a point I take very much to heart. Um, I mean, how do you think living in a world now where we've got so much access to you know information, new ways to potentially be learning? You know, when when as you say, we may not really even be conscious that we're doing it. So we're, you know, we might be using Facebook, we might be on Twitter, or we might just be you know searching for something on Google or reading something on Wikipedia. I mean, we're, we're always in this mode now where we're processing information. I mean, how how well prepared do you feel most people are to kind of learn effectively with, uh, you know, the, the, the world of information we now live in? I, I think there's two issues. We're two. So, so on the one hand, I, I sort of love the information age. I mean, I love that when we have a question at the dinner table, we can just look up the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know how I existed without Google and Wikipedia. <laughs> but right. uh, so, so I do love it. But I think there's a couple. There are a couple dangerous pieces to that world. Um, one of those pieces is that we're not all that well equipped um, for one of the important tasks. Uh, for dealing with a flood of information. So if you want to learn from a flood of information, it's really important to be able to distinguish what information is good and what information is not good. Um, And there's sort of two things that make that really complicated. I think one is a systemic issue about the way that the Internet works, which is that we don't always get source information. We don't always get um, enough information to determine whether something we're being told is is reliable, is well-validated, has a lot of evidence behind it. And I think it's very easy to look at current political debates, for example, even about um, the health care bill, the Obamacare mm-hmm. um, initiative. If you look at uh, comments people make about the Obamacare legislation, there's clearly an awful lot of just misunderstanding of what the legislation entails. Um, and that's partly because there's a lot of information out there on the Internet and, and in the world that simply isn't accurate and we're not given enough information to check it ourselves, and we don't have time. Um, but I think a second thing lies in the way that we remember what we learn and where we learned it from. Um, so we're not as good at learning source information as we are at learning content, and what that leads to is the, the problem that you remember information that may be flawed or bad or inaccurate, and what you fail to remember is the kind of information that would help you discard that from your opinion. So I think that's one 
kind of problem with the information age. Um, it may mean that we need to think differently about how we teach um, mm-hmm. people from kindergarten through college and beyond um, right. because we aren't, I think, as yet preparing people for that kind of flood of information and for sorting their way through it. Right. Um, I think another piece of it is that we may not, when you had to go to a, a, an encyclopedia and look something up, and when you had to do that physically, even if you had an encyclopedia set in your house and, and it was only a matter of going across the room, there's a very deliberate um, approach to that learning process. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I'm going now to look up something about um, Virgin and, uh, and the World War. And that also, I think, puts you in a frame of mind where you're going to think about accuracy and mm-hmm. source um, and where you know you're engaged in learning. Um, I think the flood of information that we all kind of live in also makes that unconscious learning more um, more dangerous in some ways. There's a lot right. more that we can be unconsciously learning than simply uh, the way to get from point A to point B. Right. Um, which is, in relative terms, harmless. But when you're reading a Twitter feed and not really thinking about that as an act of learning, then you may be picking up all kinds of very tacit, non-conscious associations um, that can then affect your behavior and your decision-making and your and your thinking later on in ways that you might not have wanted to be effective. Definitely, definitely. I think uh, I think a tremendous amount of that goes on. Um, I mean, in the in the same vein, but but switching gears just a, a little bit. I mean, there, there's obviously all of this you know unstructured type learning that goes on out there, informal. Uh, where we may not be conscious, uh, but there are obviously other occasions, and, and this goes directly into the, the world of kind of lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development that I'm focused on, where people are right. saying, okay, I'm going to a class, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this uh, you know, seminar room or whatever it is, and I'm listening to this person in the front of the room, so I'm conscious, I'm here to learn, but you make a note uh, in your course, and, and I, I mean, I hear this all the time, it's kind of a, a rumble across the, um, the continuing education sector right now, that lectures, um, you say, uh, although they are widely criticized, turn out to be efficient ways of helping people learn. Um, and I'm interested in that because I, I, I hear a lot of the criticism about lectures, you know, in those conscious learning experiences and a lot of lobbying for let's be much more interactive, let's, you know, have it be more self-directed in the classroom, let's get rid of lectures, basically. What what would you say in, in defense of lectures? Um, I think lectures are very organized and they're very structured and those are good things. Um, good lectures can take people through an expert's thought process in a way that doesn't happen when when you're very interactive um, because being interactive is fun and it's engaging but it also can derail a group into mm-hmm. uh, tangential things and it means that non-experts are um, engaged in thought processes, and non-experts don't think like experts. Right. Um, so I think lectures have a lot to offer just at, at the core of what they are. Um, they are really organized, really structured, um, and digestible ways to get quite a bit of information in a relatively short time. Um, to do the same kind, to acquire the same level of learning from interactive models, um, 
often will require considerably more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it often takes considerably more expertise on the part of the teacher or the instructor because you have to know how to get a group of non-expert people from point A to point B. You have to kind of know where they typically uh, hit a hit a wall in their understanding, um, what kinds of misconceptions they bring to the table. So you have to be um, very skilled um, mm-hmm. in addition to having a lot of skills at group facilitation and, and sort of keeping happy while at the same time showing them very gently the ways in which they need to change their, their way of thinking about a topic. And right. lectures are much more efficient um, in, in, in that sense uh, than other ways of learning. So I, the other thought I always have when people talk about let's, you know, let's be more interactive, um, I think that we may have lost the capacity to experience lectures as interactive um, historically, hmm. maybe, because I, I remember a really interesting experience I had in Germany where I went to a talk and it was given in German. Um, and my German wasn't terrific at the time, so I, I had a hard time processing this lecture. Um, but what I noticed about it is that it was a very old-fashioned lecture. It was given by a professor from the former East, um, who had been there before the wall had come down in the, in the former East block, and he spoke in fully articulated sentences for something like 40 minutes, mm-hmm. um, and sort of beautiful, erudite German. Um, and what I think we don't experience anymore is that kind of lengthy oration. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that I, I suspect there was a time when we used to have better skills for listening um, and for feeling engaged with with lectures, and we may have we may be going too far right. <laughs> into interactivity in such a way that we're actually undermining people's skill at listening to lectures because it is to some extent something that we learn how to do. Right, um, and, and I hate to see us unlearn that in this in favor of of. Um, new instructional methods, which have, which have yeah. their own value, but, but also have their own flaws. Right, right. Yeah, that, that is interesting uh, uh, that you, you made the comment about the, uh, the German professor, because now that you say that, I can recall um, I, I had the opportunity to spend a, a fair amount of time in Russia, and, and I think the, the kind of intellectual tradition there and, and the, the lecturer in the university is still very old school and, and a similar type of thing where, you know, they... They value a good lecture, um, and, and people are definitely prepared to sit there and, and listen um, to an expert and, and, and engage in it in a different way than I, than I think we do. Now, yeah. I mean, that being said, you know, I, I've, I've certainly sat in, um, you know, seminars at, uh, you know, say an association conference where, you know, you, you might be getting an expert um, uh, in his or her field to come in and talk about something, but they aren't necessarily a teacher. Nobody's ever really you know, in, instructed them in, in how to stand up in front of a room and actually teach, though they know their subject very, very well, obviously. I mean, in that sort of situation, what, I mean, what are the, the, I don't know, two or three tips that you might give to somebody who has subject matter expertise, needs to stand up in front of a room of people and, and deliver, you know, in the most effective possible way? What are, what are some things they should try to do? Mm, let me think. I mean, I think of a couple of things, and they depend a little bit on what kind of person that person right. is. Um, if you're very socially anxious, mm-hmm. um, I think then the tips I would give have to do with preparing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and my general experience of talks like the ones you're, you have in mind here is that they often try to convey too many things. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's too much detail and there's insufficient attention to the main messages that the person wants to convey. So I think if you're very, if you're anxious, then working hard beforehand to figure out what three things you wish people would remember after your 40-minute speech. Right. Um, because that's about what people are going to be able to take home um, for the long term. So three, the three key things, and then building from those three key things with examples or details from there, I think is very helpful for an audience. And the nice thing about that is you can do it ahead of time. Um, the thing I would say is for people who are not particularly anxious about standing up in front of an audience, and maybe this is, you know, a tiny percent of the population, right. uh, but people, the people who aren't super anxious, um, I think the other thing that you can do is to try to track your audience a little bit, um, especially the front, the front few rows, you'll be able to see whether people are understanding something, and mm. you can slow down. Um, at that point. So to actually look at the people you're talking to right. um, is, is the other thing. I think particularly novice public speakers sometimes are simply not looking at their audience mm-hmm. um, or they're looking at people in the back who are not as good in terms of getting some signals of whether people understand what you're, do- what you're saying and whether people are engaged or interested. Right. Um, and, and I think, to some extent, making eye contact with people in the audience also tends to pull them in a little bit, um, and that changes the dynamic for you as a presenter mm-hmm. because you're getting some you're getting some responses, you're getting people nodding. Um, so I think those are the two big ones because the, the common errors I see are droning on with no attention to the audience and trying to just cram way too much into right. one presentation. Right. Um, I, those are interesting too, because I think, um, I, yeah, I certainly know when I myself am presenting in a room, being able to get that eye contact and and and, and establish a rapport. And as you said, it usually happens in the first few rows, you know, that 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 you're doing that with, and it can make a huge difference. But we now live in this world where you know a lot of the teaching that's going on is um, well similar to what we're doing right now. It's going on over the internet. I don't see you right now. You don't see me. There are you know, <laughs> thousands of webinars every day where I think presenters commit both of the errors that uh, <laughs> that you just referred to they try to pack too much into them and they can't see their audience so they don't, it's hard for them to to gauge um i mean how, how do you feel about the, the webinars as, as a format in in general i'm not super familiar with webinars because mm-hmm. i've only taken one uh, in my in my life um what i know is that it's not a format that i really like mm. um and uh, and I think that may be because there's so um, there's so much difficulty with connecting right. um, to what's going on because it feels very isolated. Um, and then there's the sort of other thing that webinars can be something you engage in with a lot of other distractions like emails, <laughs> sort of other things happening on your screen. Exactly. Uh, that's always that's always sort of a, a an issue, I think. Um, so I have not liked webinars that I've that I've experienced. Um, I'm trying to think right now if I if I could think about how the format would be better. 
But one thing I was going to you know, ask you about, and maybe this is a connecting point, maybe it's not, uh, you can tell me, but I, I know a lot of your focus in your work is on storytelling, um, you know, telling and, and hearing stories. Uh, and, and I know, you know, whenever I've been on a webinar and, and, it, and it has been engaging at some level, it's usually because the presenter is, is very good at contextualizing things, usually is whether they're you know, out and out telling a story somehow makes it makes it feel more like I'm engaged in a narrative um, than that I'm just listening to facts being thrown at me uh, on screen. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about that perspective, uh, but uh, it'd be interesting to, to hear how you think about storytelling in the context of learning in, in general anyway. I, I mean, stories are, are great for learning in so many different ways. Um, certainly, if you can make what you want to convey in any public presentation into a story, um, It'll, it'll fly so much better for, for the audience. Um, I think we're really geared towards uh, learning from stories, and so when information is being presented in story form, it really works well for us. Um, I came across a very weird piece of evidence for this the other day. I was in parent-teacher conferences, and um, the teacher was explaining to me that my daughter's reading level was a bit up in the air because she was more advanced with fiction than with nonfiction, and this is apparently hmm. pretty typical. Um, and it's and it is, I think, partly this narrative structure, this beginning, middle, end, and the way that plots are structured makes it easier to re- to encode and recall information. Um, and when you get nonfiction texts, especially for first graders, they don't really have that kind of easy structure. Mm-hmm. They have other kinds of, of structures, and those are not as available to little kids. So I think making a story is engaging, it's motivating, it's also cognitively helpful because it makes things seem clearer. Um, you know, some, some presentations work well that with stories and others don't. And then there's a, a sort of third use of stories, w- which is an illustrative point in which you can't make the whole presentation into a story, but you really... Um, hit your kind of take-home messages with vivid examples. Mm-hmm. I think that's another strategy that um, can help in a webinar. It can help. It can certainly help feeling like there's a real person and not a robot right. Right. <laughs> giving the information out. Um, and so I think those are at least three different ways that stories really help. Um, well, great. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time today, uh, but I thought before we wrap up the conversation, I'd ask you, you know, when you when you look at things that are happening in in the world of of learning, what are some things that you just find really exciting uh, right now that you're looking, just really looking forward to seeing how they evolve over the over the coming years? Well, I really like. Um, I think there's been several kind of developments in in sort of lifelong learning that I'm aware of, and I mean, you certainly will know a lot more of these than me. Um, and I've been really excited by them. The ones that I'm most familiar with, I mean, the teaching company has been around for quite a while, um, but there's also Osher Lifelong Learning mm-hmm. Institute, um, and I know in Utah we just passed a bill giving um, people over a certain age kind of very low-cost access to uh, university courses for uh, non-credit purposes. Mm. and. And I like, uh, there's a few things I like about that. I think one, one thing I like about it is that uh, my training, my original background was in adult development and aging. And, you know, we were talking about this expanded lifespan and this sort of, you know, people retiring at 65 looking at 20 additional years. Um, and one of the things that sociologists have been talking about in that field is 
definitely like structural lag. You know, you have this group of people and we don't have institutional structures mm-hmm. for them to be part of. Um, so what we've seen is an explosion in volunteerism among seniors. Um, and I think an opening up of lifelong learning opportunities that's really pretty cool because these are not people who are kind of ready to um, go gently into that good night. These are sort of people who still are pretty vital, active people. Um, so I, I've really found that exciting. And the other thing I like about it is the acknowledgement that learning might be something people would want to do just for its own sake. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a fairly long-standing anti-intellectual tradition within this country, so it's very nice, um, you know, in which degrees need to be training people for jobs and in a sort of relatively narrow way of understanding that. And so I like to see the development of, of this kind of alternative perspective where people are just going to a class because they just want to know something, and that's acceptable, it's available. Um, I kind of like to see... Um, and I don't know as much about the sort of broader the teaching company, of course, is available to anyone that purchases their classes. The, um, the locally here in Utah, we also have something called the Questioning Minds Forum, which is a nonprofit that hmm. does a lot of intellectual talks and explorations for the community. That's also age open. Um, you know, I think it could be a kind of exciting time in terms of all the opportunities available. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, think so. I mean, it's one of the um, – uh, I'm sure the baby boomers are not happy that they're getting uh, older, but uh, it's certainly I think that this is one of the positive impacts of uh, a group that has been so engaged, you know, throughout their, their lives, uh, now moving into retirement and, and saying, you know, there, there are other vistas I want to explore uh, as, as I do this. Well, great. Well, yeah, I just- go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just going to say that for, you know for me being in the time of life where I'm squeezed by family demands and work demands, it's also kind of nice to sort of think that in fifteen twenty years right. <laughs> I will get to go back to literature, finally understand certain aspects of history that I just mm-hmm. kind of you know avoided when I was in school that I'll that I'll get to play catch up and get to sort of do some exploration. I can tell you that the, the teaching company has a great music appreciation course that, I, that I've also been enjoying. So you can. Uh, I, I have heard about that course. From, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, he's a, he's a fa- I can't remember the, the professor's name right off the top of my head, but he's definitely somebody who can make a lecture interesting. <laughs> um, Perfect. Well, Monisha, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, talk more about this, and um, you know, excited to. to See any anything else you do, whether it's um, formally in the world of uh, uh, lifelong learning or, or just your continuing work in, in the field of psychology. So thanks so much. Thank you. That wraps up my interview with Dr. Monisha Pashupathy. If you enjoyed it, I would encourage you to go to iTunes and please give Learning Revolution a brief review. Uh, If you are in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, or professional development, or if you want to be in that business, if you are an individual subject matter expert, a trainer, uh, if you represent a trade or professional association, or a training or consulting firm, then Learning Revolution is your source for information, insights, and practical how-tos when it comes to making some money in the market for lifelong learning. So I encourage you to visit learningrevolution.net to find out more and thanks for tuning in today. 